All right. You just automatically got quiet. T's making sure no birds fly in and poke somebody in the eye. So, uh, and while he's doing that, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 10, or you can read along on the screen. I know it's a little br- brighter this morning, but we're thankful for sun and not rain. And so, uh, if you're new with us this morning, we're, we normally are preaching through like a book of the Bible, what we would call expositional preaching, where we take the sort of the main point and argument and flow of the text and let that direct us. But we're in a series that's more topical, and we're talking this year a lot about hospitality and about it, what it means to welcome the stranger. And we're starting this year by what it means to actually welcome the Jesus that maybe we don't know or that we've not experienced. We believe that Jesus is inexhaustible in his glory. No matter what degrees we have, experience we have, no matter if we were the, the top Awana student in a church culture growing up, whatever it is, we have not exhausted the greatness of Jesus. And so we don't ever want to have this sort of been there, done that view of Jesus. But we also don't want it to be just a, a head knowledge. But we believe in the Bible that when it talks about knowing God and being known by God, it goes to the depths of our emotions, it goes to the depths of our experiences. And so this morning we'll be preaching what you might call an implication from the text. Not, not sort of the direct, you know, context of persecution that's there, but we're going to pull out an implication that I think is very important for us as we think about this issue of hospitality. So we've talked about how we welcome the real Jesus into our real lives through our engagement with the Word. We've talked about it through prayer. We've talked about it last week. Bow did an excellent job through the community and communion we have together. And today we're going to talk about welcoming Jesus into our own personal stories. And I think we have some some great important truths and implications to give us a foundation for that in Matthew 10, 26 through 31. Jesus says, So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. We thank you for the sun. We thank you for these birds that we've seen uh, that maybe you've just divinely placed here this morning to remind us of how you see us, of our value and our worth before you. We pray now that you would lead us into truth. We pray now you would lead us into grace. We pray now, Holy Spirit, uh, that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart to behold the glory of Jesus so that we might be changed from one degree of glory to another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I have some friends who are, are super conscious about their eating habits. 
And there's a lot more people like this today. I'm not one of those people, if you know me, so I'm not trying to pretend. Right? I'm cool with going to McDonald's right after service. All right, lots of judgment. I can feel the judgment, especially this area right here. But uh, one of my friends, Tommy and Jared, out in Arkansas, they, they do what's called this wild diet or whatever. But somehow, one positive thing about this diet is, is that you still get to eat bacon. So I'm good with it as far as that goes. But you don't just want to eat any bacon. You don't want to eat it that is processed. You don't want to eat it with chemicals and preservatives and all these type of things. And so they found this place out in the middle of nowhere, rural Arkansas, where they would drive literally almost two hours to get their bacon. And they'd go out to this place, and the way that they described it is, is my friend Tommy went off to him, but Jared said, I'm not going out there again. It takes too long to drive. But it wasn't so much the drive. It's when they got there, it, it felt like you had watched some detective show, and this is where the serial killer lives. And so he's not only maybe processing pork and bacon, but maybe he has another area where he's processing human flesh. And so they talked about like how nervous and scary this was. And Tommy looked at Jared and said, because Tommy's been out there a bunch, he said, did, you let, did he let you go down in the cellar? And Jared was like, no. He said, I walked up to the door of the, of the cellar, and he said, this is what really scared me. He's like, whoa, no, you can't go down there. And so he, he quickly went inside, shut the door, went down into the cellar and just kind of awkwardly and uncomfortably got what he the bacon and brought it out and gave it to Jared and Jared's like well you know I hope I hope this is pork <laughs> but uh, Tommy's like no no man it's, it's okay he said you he let me go down there it's it's fine he, he just he's actually more afraid of you <laughs> and he's distrustful of people and so but when he really trusts you He'll let you go down in the cellar. He'll let you see how the bacon is made. And as I thought about that when we uh, were coming to this topic this morning is, is the reality that all of us in this room have these areas in our life, in our homes, in our stories, in our world that we really don't want anybody to have access to. It's kind of where the bacon of our life is made, so to speak. It's like, it's where we really became who we are. It's really where the fruits of our life and the words of our mouth flow from. In the Bible, it's our heart. And if we're honest, it's not just that we don't want to go there ourselves, and we especially don't want anybody else to be able to go down in the cellar of our stories. I think if many of us are honest, it's we find Jesus standing at that door and knocking. That's how we begun this series, was talking about as the church in the book of Revelation in chapter 3, is that Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. The church is doing church. They're doing their religious thing. They're going through the motions. He says, you're doing a lot of good works. Only one minor detail. I'm out here knocking saying, I, wanna, I don't want you to just do church. I don't want you to just read your Bible and serve the poor and pray and, and you know, go to Lee University or show up here. I actually want to come in and sit at the table of your life and dine with you. 
Many of us have never really welcomed Jesus there. We might, some of us, if we're honest, we've let him come in and sit in the living room of our house, of our hearts, but not yet sure we can trust him with the cellar. We know he already knows if we have a half-decent theology or understanding of God, but we really don't want to have to talk about it. You know, it's not just our past either, it's our present. We not only have the sellers of our stories in the past, but the present, the everyday stuff that's going on, that's the real us, what's really ticking behind the surface, what's really causing the noise in our soul. And then it's our futures. Most every one of us, if not all of us in here, are daydreaming about something. We have a, what, what can be called our if-onlys. If only this happens, then I'll finally arrive. But is Jesus a part of that daydreaming? Or are we afraid if I let him too much be involved in this, he might mess it up for me. I've got a pretty good plan for my life. And I'm not really quite sure I want him to have access to change that. See, we talk about a lot about discipleship, and what we mean by discipleship is not a curriculum. It is a submission of all of our lives to Jesus as Lord. That's what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is not someone who wears a badge that says Christian and lets Jesus be the mascot for your team. A disciple is someone who says, wherever Jesus wants to go, I go. Whatever Jesus wants to talk about, I talk about. And wherever Jesus wants to reign, he reigns. And that's a lifelong journey. So if you're not there this morning, then you're just normal. But Jesus wants to help take us there. So let's, let's think out loud as we do sometimes. Why is it so hard for us to let Jesus have access to the sellers of our stories, whether that be past, present, or future? What do you think? Kat said, because it feels, feels too painful. It's great. Any others? Comfortable with what we know, scared of what we don't know, Jason said. So it's, if, if we're honest, and this is how I am sometimes, it's like this might not be great, but it's at least a not great that I'm familiar with. fear of being known. Sometimes I live with this low-grade feeling. If people really knew me, like really, not just living room table rusty, but cellar rusty, they'd reject me. Hmm. Shamed and unworthy. Lauren I actually have to change and all these are true and they're all mixed into all of us right if, if and if I go there I'm gonna I know how Jesus is <laughs> he doesn't just let things go 
And then that makes us even question, how do we even then really believe about his heart? Do we really believe he's good? A phrase that's been resonating in our lives as a family and as a couple this past couple years is, whatever we don't own, will own us. And you do not have to be conscious, right? You don't, what, whatever we don't own, will own us. The secrets, the fears, the wounds, the sins, the daydreams, the if-onlys. But the gospel tells us that God is bigger this is what he's saying, how our, our sins, they are great, his mercy is more. We could say our sufferings are great, but his mercy is more. The gospel not only tells us that he's bigger, but that he's better. And the context today, really, of this text that we're going to apply to our stories is this context of persecution that Jesus is preparing his disciples to engage on a regular basis. To where other people will be judging them, other people will be condemning them, other people may literally be killing them. And yet he is saying, do you have a vision of God that is enough, the vision of God who is truth, that will be there with you and will be enough for you regardless of what comes? And what we want to do today is just to apply that as we think about our lives and every layover of our stories is will we believe that whatever is uncovered, that whatever we find out, that whatever we engage with, that he is enough. So the first thing we need to do to do this is we have to consider our belief in God's sovereignty, His power, His control over all things. That we Do we really believe He holds the story of the world? Now verses 26 through 29 lay out some of these big truths about who God is. So if you're new, we ask these questions a lot. Who is God? What has He done? Who am I? And if I really believe that, how would my life change? So some big who is God answers right here. Notice verses 26 and 27. For have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered proclaim on the rooftops. What Jesus is saying here is that God knows everything. The $5 word for that is he's omniscient. He already knows it all. There's nothing you're going to find out that God's going to say, whoa, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was that bad. You really stumped me on this one. But not only does he know everything in all of the world, in all of history, and in all of creation, but he's all powerful. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, so much we could say here, but what is very clear is God is over everything. That at the end of the day, it is God who wins. It is God who reigns. It is God who determines what was true and what was false. It is God who determines who was true and who was false. That there is no person, place, thing, event in our lives that has more authority than him. And he's also over everything. Notice verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Somewhere now, in some remote rainforest, a bird may have died. And God was there. He was not surprised. 
It was not some random act, but it was a part of his will. And this tells us also that he is with everything. Notice it doesn't fall to the ground apart from your father, not just apart from his will, but apart from his presence. So he knows everything. He's the authority of over everything. He's the purposer over everything, and he's present over everything. Just praise him. This is God. Well, why do they need to hear this? I mean, we can sit here and say these facts all day long, and most of us would check off that we believe in these things in our heads. These disciples grew up in a, in a Jewish culture where they would have learned these things from a young age, and even in light of their, the lack of education they may have had and been engaged with even as common fishermen, these would have just been your common Sunday school truths. This would have been God 101. This would have been religion 101. But why did they need to hear it? Because they didn't really believe it. There's a difference in having a, a, a theoretical belief in something and having a functional faith. We see that Jesus is telling them this because they're afraid of man's opinion. They're worried about what will be covered and uncovered. And they're thinking it's really those who are in power who determine what is true and what is false. It doesn't really matter what's true and false. It's just whoever's got the microphone gets to say what's true or false. And Jesus is saying, you know, not so fast. In the end, God is the one who will make everything clear. But he can sense all of the buts they have in response to that. And he can sense them in us right now. But, but you just don't know. But this, but that. They're afraid of man's power. This is why in verse 28, don't fear them. But they can kill me. Yes, but they, they can't destroy you. They're probably afraid of man's purposes. The motives of wicked people can wreak havoc in our lives. And they have. We don't merely sit in this room this morning as, as sinners who've sinned against others, and God, though we do, but we're also here as people who've been sinned against. Jesus is saying, God's purposes down to a sparrow are ultimate. And we're afraid of man's presence, just as they were. The people sitting beside us right now, if we're honest, often feel much more real than God in us and with us. These disciples had witnessed Jesus' miracles. These are the disciples who are walking with the word of God made flesh. These are the disciples who see Jesus heal the sick, raise the dead, and calm the storms. And yet, they continue to wrestle with fear and doubt. So we're in good company. Jesus here is not kicking them in the face. He's giving them a word of grace. He's calling us all in here to really have a belief that God's sovereign good purposes and plan and presence are not just 
for the big story of the world, but for the story of our lives. Now I'm going to date myself a little bit, and for the, but, but I know with you younger people, you love YouTube, right? So it's a YouTube assignment, if this doesn't make any sense. And so you'll have fun this afternoon. The Hair Club for Men. Who in here has heard it, seen the TV commercials, The Hair Club for Men? It's what I thought. Bad sermon illustration, right? Only four. So Google it. YouTube it. The Hair Club for Men. It's hilarious. So it has this guy. He looks handsome. You know, he's got this sweet head of hair. And he's advertising this product that if you use it, you'll go from bald or, or receding hairline to you'll have this same, like, awesome, you know, 1980s hairsprayed hairdo that he has. And the big kick at the end of the commercial is, not only am I the president of the hair club for men, who knows it, what is it? But I'm also a client. <laughs> and it's like, wow! If you had hair problems, I guess. So, the end of the commercial, it just hits you like, this guy's not a, this guy's not a paid for actor who's just trying to get me to believe something or trying to get me to buy something. He's actually someone who uses it and I can actually see the product on his head. We as Christians can oftentimes be the opposite of that. We can be, as it were, the anti-hair club for men. Where we go around telling everybody, let me tell you about my great God. Let me tell you about how big he is. Let me tell you about his, you know, we're using these words, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipurposing, his omnipresence. And then our lives get inconvenienced and we just flip out. And we don't let him in. We can believe he's the one who holds the story of the universe, but every one of us in here are tempted to believe, yeah, but that doesn't count for me. Every one of us in here can say, yes, I believe all those things, but I'm the exception. Yes, Jesus can revive the whole history of Israel. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, it's just them going back and telling their story over and over again. If you read the New Testament, it's Jesus reliving this history of Israel and doing it better and bringing redemption. We believe He can calm the storm. He can say, peace, be still. And it stops. But we really don't, or I don't, it's just me, think, that I'll be able to go to sleep tonight without just drifting into the exhaustion of my anxieties. Many of us are closet atheists when it comes to our stories, our emotions. But I think it may be more, and somebody might have mentioned this earlier, is we're not just atheists functionally, but we're accusers. I think if we say, wow, if I really let God into the story of my life, I don't know what I'd end up thinking about Him. If I go back to when this happened to me, or when I, this happened from me, 
know I'm going to be tempted to ask, where was God? I know I'm going to be tempted to say, why God? I don't want to have to do that. I know if I bring him into my presence, if I really talk to him about what's going on in my life today, I think I'd probably get annoyed with him. Because he's probably going to want to work on my heart, and I just want him to fix it so I don't have to deal with it anymore. If I really let him into my daydreams, my plans for the future, like Lauren said, I'm afraid that it's just going to make me really anxious because I know he might change it and he's probably not, he doesn't usually tell me exactly what's going to happen. I don't like it that Jesus doesn't send me a letter in the mail that says this is what's going to happen next week or next month. As revealing as this is, my friends, if you just go read the Psalms, this is what they're wrestling with. God already knows our functional atheism and accusations. He doesn't want us to pretend. You know, He can handle it. We have a small view of God if we think He's like the, the, the irrational parent. If you know what I'm talking about, the irrational parent is when you walk in the house and you're kind of thinking, I don't really know what mood they're going to be in today. <laughs> Or this doesn't have to be just a parent. I'm a parent, so not picking on parents. Irrational person, spouse, friend, hallmate, roommate. It's like, sometimes this guy's fun to be around, but if he's had a bad day, better keep her distance. God, God's not like that. You can, you can come to God. You can be honest. So we've got to consider, what, what really is my belief in him? who he is, but also we need to, to see it really is about us. There's some of us in here who think we have a humility, but it's actually not a humility. It's actually a disregard for how God actually sees us. So let's see here how he sees us. Notice verse 30. The hairs of your head are all numbered. Is that not amazing? Your hairs matter to God. You're, you're not like something he's just obligated to deal with because you just happen to be on the earth. Oh, wow, somebody had another baby. Somebody else I have to care for. No, you were created in his image. You are beautifully and wonderfully made. However you think about yourself when you look in the mirror or look at your resume, when God looks at you, you're his beautiful, special creation down to the very number of the hairs on your head. That's how intricately you are seen, known, and loved. They're numbered. That's detail. I wouldn't even know how to begin to start to count hairs on your head. But he knows them. And notice it's your head. Not just he cares for humanity in general. 
Sometimes we think of God as this just impersonal, deistic being that kind of just looks down on this blob of humanity and says, yeah, I love them. Yeah, I care for them. Yeah, I create them. No, Jesus says your. He, he knows your hairs on your head. He also says here, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, we believe that God cares deeply about his creation. That's something we really believe here at Matthew's Table Church, is that God is at work redeeming and restoring in all of creation. He loves the created world. His goal is not one day to take us as disembodied souls up to clouds to have an eternal choir practice and make us chubby little babies floating around with harps and wings. His goal is to redeem and restore this whole creation so that a new creation is filled with the glory of eternally embodied humans fulfilling the vision he had for this world from the very beginning in Genesis 1. But humanity was the climax of his creation. And he wants you to know that you are valued. You are more valued than the most beautiful animals, but you also are more seen, known, and valued than the smallest. And he's with you. If he's with that tiny bird in the Amazon forest that nobody may even know exists, he's saying, I'm with you. I'm with you in the late night study session or the late night falling into sin. I'm with you in the season when you're alone. I'm with you in the season when you don't know if your kids are going to grow up and just hate you. I'm with you in the seasons where you don't know how you're going to pay your bills. I'm with you in the seasons where you don't know if you're going to stay married. I'm with you in the seasons when you didn't stay married. I'm with you in the seasons when people you love die. I'm with you in the seasons when people you love don't care. But I'm with you. I remember growing up and having to have my tonsils took out. And I remember thinking, do my parents absolutely hate me? This was a horrible experience for me. Maybe I'm just weak. But I remember after it, like, thinking I was going to die. And I just remembered even the thing of going to the hospital and getting taken into this surgery is really just thinking, like, why do I have to do this? Taking out your tonsils is not really like a necessary surgery. I was having some issues and I had to trust all these older people who told me I was supposed to do it. But one of the things I do remember from that time wrestling with the question of like, do my parents hate me? Is my dad just being there by my side the whole time? I remember thinking, well, I don't know why he's doing this to me, but I do know he's at least doing it with me. I remember him giving me a little popsicle stick because we watched a lot of army movies and when they operated on people, they got a bullet and bit it, right, so it didn't hurt so much. Bite the bullet, if you heard that phrase. And I remember him giving me that popsicle stick and us just pretending, right? You've been in war. Bite the bullet, right? It's hurting. Just squeeze down on the stick. This 
we go into our stories, as we go into our sufferings and into our sins, yes, you're probably going to think, why? Why should I do this? Why should I pull this out? Why should I deal with this? Why do I have to even let you into what's going on today? Why do I have to let you what's going on in the future? And you're probably going to, a lot of the times, just going to look at God and say, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't feel necessary. I don't understand. And it's at those times you're just going to have to to remember and, and cling to the fact that He is with you. And not only that He is with you, but that He is for you. And not only that He is with you and for you, but He is with you and for you not because He has to be, but because He wants to be. That you are of more value to Him than you could ever imagine. Like the lost coin in the parable. The lost sheep in the parable. The lost son in the parable. He, he's willing to leave everything to come after you. You're no burden to Him. I know some of you in here really probably think, oh, I just don't want to be a burden to anybody. And then you project that onto God. God is wanting to tell you today through the Word of Christ, you are no burden to Him. You may annoy and aggravate the heck out of everybody else. But not Him. He's going to be there. There's some of you who need to go to, into some places, and if you don't, it's dangerous. There's some of you battling maybe with some sins right now in your life, and you're not talking to Him about it. And I'm not even talking yet about talking to other people about it, but you're not even talking to Him about it. You're not submitting those lusts to Him. You're not submitting that greed to Him. You're not submitting that anger to Him. And what can happen is if you let it sit in there and you don't bring it out into the open before him, is you'll wait and in five years, because the enemy's patient, you'll, you'll start to say, that's just who I am. You'll begin to identify not just your actions with your suffering and sin, but you will actually make it a part of your identity. And then when you're ready to come out with it, whatever it is, you'll have this view. All right, God, I'm coming out, but you better accept who I am. I've formed my identity for these last ten years around this thing that happened to me or this temptation or this lust or this greed. And then you'll come out to other people about it, and you'll just say all them, hey, this is who I am. You're going to accept it or not? And what you will think is then your freedom will actually be just a declaration of your slavery. And it was all because you didn't trust God enough to just do the awkward thing of saying, this is me right now. So we have to come with him and invite him in the story that is us. And that's the last thing here briefly. How do we do this? How do we get practical? How do we get empowered to do this? If we really... If we really confess, I believe God's over-sovereign the story of the world, but I'm having a hard time believing that includes me. And then we get there and we say, okay, wait, I do. I see it. Includes me. Hair, down to the hairs on my head, down to the value of my life. How, to, how do I begin to hear these words, fear not, fear not, don't be afraid? 
We have to remember that not only are we seeking to welcome Jesus into our story, but we have to already see Jesus has already been into our story. This is really good news. Do you realize Jesus has already been there and he didn't turn away? Into your past, into your pain. He's already been there. Into the depths of your sin, into the depths of your suffering. That's actually why he came to earth in the first place. It's because he knew. He knew we needed him even when we didn't know it. And he knew how deeply we needed him even when we didn't know how deeply we did. We are not going to find a temptation from our past, present, or future that He has not already faced in our place. God's Word tells us He was tempted in every way that we were, in every way that we are, in every way that we will be, and yet He was without sin. You're not going to find a sorrow that He hasn't endured. Man of sorrows, what a name. You're not going to uncover a sin that he's not already covered. Is that not good news? You're like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to know that it's worse than I thought it was. He already knows it is worse than you think it is. But the good news is, whatever you're uncovered, he's already covered. It is finished. However you feel naked and ashamed as you begin to be more vulnerable with Him about who you are. He's saying, whoa, 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 you may feel naked and ashamed, but you will never be naked and ashamed because I have covered you with my righteousness. You're already covered. You're not going to discover a wound that He has not already healed because He says, by my stripes, you are healed. Well, you might think, well, then why even deal with it? Why even bring it up? Because the Bible teaches us is that our hearts have to align with His reality. That it is confession that brings healing. That we may have all the money in the bank, and we do. Because Jesus has paid it all. But what we've got to do is we've got to go to the bank and make the withdrawal. So that we then can live off of what Jesus has accomplished for us. That's our whole lives. It's just going to the bank of His finished, perfect work and saying, I need a withdrawal today. I want to talk about this. And He's never going to say, wow, that's a bill that's just too big. He's never going to say, wow, you know, your insurance just isn't enough to cover that surgery. He will always be enough. You're not an exception. You're not a burden. My parents watch a TV show sometimes, or they used to. I think it's called Storage Wars. Does this ring a bell? So what these guys do, and all of you smarter than pe people can correct me afterwards, the way I understand it, is they, they don't just go buy individual items, but there's these storage containers, storage units, and they 
they get a chance to maybe open the door and glance, and sometimes maybe not even that, but they just buy them, and whatever's in there, they get. And sometimes it can be awesome stuff, and sometimes it can be a gigantic waste of money. Well, this is the good news of the gospel. is when Jesus chose to purchase you, he purchased all of you. He knew what was in the corner. He knows what's in the corners. He knows what's in the cellar of the storage unit. And he said, I want it all. Jesus didn't die for the best version of you. He died for you. Jesus didn't die for the churched up version of you, Christened up version of you, the version of you that you think you have to be to be accepted by other people, the version of you, honestly, that you pretend to be just so you can even accept yourself. He knows you. He loves you. He wants you. But he wants all of you. All of you. Jesus comes to be Lord of all, as some famous person said, or not Lord at all. This is not a threat he's making to us. It's a beautiful invitation. As a church, we have resources that would be boring and time expanding to go over right now that can help you do this. To think about telling your story with Jesus as the hero. To looking back into your family of origin and understanding those influences. To map out your life, its, its beauties and its brokenness. To look into your everyday story and understand not just what you did, but why you did it. I'm not asking you right now to even begin to think about sharing this with others, but it's a beautiful thing when you can open yourself to God and have someone else you can trust enough to let into the cellar. Because Jesus will be there in the cellar. And he'll say, I've been waiting for you. Guess what? You don't got to be afraid. Fear not. You're of more value than many sparrows. Because we're not talking about pointless, narcissistic, morbid introspection. But finding that we are needy. That Jesus is enough as the sovereign Lord over the sellers of our stories. Father, we thank you. It's so hard to believe, God, when we see ourselves honestly for who we are, that we are of such great worth in your eyes, both in creation and redemption. Help our unbelief as we come now to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.